can we not do another episode where we talk about Dub Dub? Like we've just gotten back from it. We've had. We like- are going to talk about Dub Dub. I'm. Ki- I was kidding. I was joking. It was a joke. Okay. okay. Oh, I didn't. I didn't get that either. <laughs> no, I didn't get it. I'm like, oh, all right, fine. Yeah. So there's heaps. There's heaps. Wait, you you didn't Let's get start. it. You didn't get it was a joke when I said that we weren't allowed to talk Dub Dub until next Dub Dub. Yeah. No. I didn't. I, didn't. I took oh. it as serious. Yeah. Same. Let's start. Hello. You're listening to Mobile Couch, a podcast where we talk about mobile development. I'm, hang on, what's my name? I'm just seeing how far you can get through the spiel. I can't start again. You, you do it so much better. I, I have it memorized. Do you? Yeah. I, I mean, I still have my jelly and bean one memorized. And I actually have to stop myself every single time we start the episode from, from uh, slipping into that. Oh, dear. Hi there. You are listening. To Jelly and Bean. This is a show where we talk about... Hang on, Jelly Beans. No. No? All kinds, all manner of geek topics, tech, movies, TV shows, games, and more. Have you ever had those jelly bellies? This show. That are like Hogwarts... Is hosted by... Harry Potter ones? What were they called? Ben, you had some. Yeah, I don't remember. They were disgusting. They were absolutely... Because you can get like different levels of disgustingness, and the ones that are the full-on level, it's not worth the reward. It's not worth going through the horrible flavors to get a couple of good ones. Yeah, I just I just buy just the flavors that I like. That's the benefit of Jelly Bellies. Mm. You can just buy the flavors you want. Except for the Harry Potter ones where they come in like, I think that's the whole point, is that you don't know if you're getting a horrible flavor yeah, that, or a that good sounds, flavor. That sounds The Harry Potter ones are okay because the bads aren't that bad, but then you can go further and they're really there is, bad. There are ones. They, they act, there's actually another thing where they do... They will actually create like some crazy ass. Yeah, there's. I had like ones. slug, vomit. Oh, oh, that's um, awful. I can't remember slug the slug vomit. No, what no, does no, slug vomit tastes like. <laughs> I mean, you could eat both at the same time and get that flavor. But <laughs> yuck. Yeah, they and they were terrible. Is this the thing you used to talk about on Jelly Bean? Am I I understanding it properly? No, we didn't talk about jelly beans. We talked about tech, TV shows, movies, games, and more. Okay. This show is hosted by Brandon Maines, an unlikely hero from the distant lands of the United States, and myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly, an Apple fanboy with a heart of gold. There you go. Hmm. This is obviously taking you back to down memory lane. I, I said I recited that thing so many times. I have it. I have it nailed. And I did it to music, so I had it timed perfectly too. That's what we need. I know, you keep saying that. Hmm. Hi, you are listening to Mobile Couch. This is a show where we talk about mobile development for mobiles that you develop for. Awesome. This show is hosted by Jake McMullen. I'm an Android developer. An Android developer who knows nothing about Android (laughs) and fought with JavaScript all day and loves Swift. Yes. And Ben Trangrove. Hello. A, an Australian from New Zealand that lives in London. <laughs> so accurate. At, <laughs> and myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly, an Apple fanboy with a heart of gold. Because <laughs> that's the thing that I have to stop myself from saying every time. And this show is sponsored. Sponsored? Not really sponsored. Supported. Is supported by our Patreon patrons, who are amazing. And thank you very much. And this is episode number... 60. 60. Dang. It could Whoa. be wrong. I think it actually might be 60. I think you might actually have it right. That, I did have it open like, two seconds bizarre. ago. So how about them dub-dubs, eh? It was pretty good, I it have was. to say. It was a great conference. I um, I have some important news from dub-dub. I, I took a 
critical bug to the lab and they fixed it. Do you want to hear what it was? That's sensational. Yes, please. The code on the front page of the Swift website was indented incorrectly and now it's not. Wow. I am changing <laughs> That's the <world>. awesome. <laughs> Did you really walk into the labs and yes, tell them that? I that's did. That's crazy. That, and that's then they didn't believe why you. Why you went to the lab, right? <laughs> no, I Penny had another. not believe you. But they didn't believe yes. me, and so I pulled it up, and the engineer thought it was hilarious. And we took a screenshot, and then he took it to the person who did the website. And look, it's fixed. Labs work. I completely agree that labs work. I had, I think, probably if you were to ask me my highlight of the week, anyone, anyone. What is your highlight of the week, Jake? Oh, I'm so so not, so glad you asked. Um, it was probably attending labs. So the sessions were good, but I had a couple of great lab experiences. Uh, so I went to the Swift lab because I'm super excited about Swift 2 and Xcode 7. So, of course, the first thing I did was to install Xcode 7 and open a project I've been working on and run the migration tool and hit build and run. And the compiler crashed. So it turns out a third-party library, an open-source library I'm using, causes the compiler to crash when it tries to compile it. And I was able to show that to like one of the Swift language engineers, and he like saw the compiler crash and said, yep, that's the compiler crashing. And he <laughs> logged a bug using my Apple ID from my machine and then immediately wrote down the bug number. So I felt, wow, perhaps he's going to like go back and fix that bug. Has it been marked as a duplicate yet? I haven't seen anything happen to it right. through Radar. And it was great talking to the engineers in the lab about this sort of thing. So the fact that it was an open source project that led to this compiler crash caused them to take it, I guess, somewhat seriously because they figured other people are likely to encounter it. Um, so that was one awesome lab experience. There were two others. I've had a long-running radar to do with trying to find a way to prevent videos playing on cellular networks. I got to whinge about it to people that actually work on those frameworks, and they all agreed that there's kind of a gap in how all the frameworks come together. I met the guy that works on the low-level networking libraries on iOS. So it's apparently, um, you know how we all use uh, like NSURL session and the like? Well, we should be, yes. Right? That runs on top of CF networking, which runs on top of the networking library this guy actually writes. So there's kind of like layers of abstraction. And um, yeah, so the issue is that um, reachability... Reachability is some sample code Apple have provided yes. that shows you how you might wrap the system configuration library, which is a C++ library, to find out what network interface a request is likely to be made over or to get a callback when the network interface, the currently active network interface, changes. Apple have updated their documentation for that to make it really clear that you shouldn't rely on what it's telling you about which network interface is likely to be used. Right, because it's useless. Right, because it may or may not actually use that network interface in the end. And you can see how why that's the case. So one of the features, things they announced at the conference this week was, um, I think they're calling it network reliability. And this sounds like an awesome feature. You know when you're, um, this happens to me all the time when I leave my house. I get in my car, my phone's connected to my Wi-Fi network at home, and I start playing a podcast or something. And then I reverse out of my garage and it starts to get out of range and it doesn't switch over to cellular because it still thinks that it's probably within range of the Wi-Fi and it desperately clings to it trying. Right. I have hopelessly. that when I walk away from the house. Yeah. And then the solution is uh, you, if you're not driving your car, you usually go in and switch off Wi-Fi and say, tell your phone, just give up on Wi-Fi, please, because I know it's not working. Go to cellular. 
So in iOS 9, they've added that as a system feature that it will automatically <laughs> just go in and it opens up control center in terms <laughs> yeah, of Wi-Fi. It does. It opens up control center in terms of Wi-Fi. No, it doesn't. So both network interfaces remain like technically active, like you have a Wi-Fi connection, but it stops using it when it stops working right. and favors the cellular. So does it actually like detect that you've walked away or is it some other? I think it it detects the reliability of the network interface. So if the Wi-Fi interface stops working properly by some definition of working properly, then it will fall back to cellular, even though you still have a Wi-Fi connection. That sounds dangerous. Right. So so I talked to this guy who obviously implemented all of this about whether you can actually rely on what reachability is telling you. And he's like, yeah, I know the documentation says that you can't, but technically I'm pretty sure as of iOS, iOS 9, it's doing all this complex stuff, but we actually do tell you, like we give that, we will call that callback before we fall back to cellular. So we'll give you a reachability notification to tell you that we've changed the cellular before we do but there are certainly that wasn't the case in earlier versions of ios and his his recommendation was still not to rely on it because it may change in the future but maybe kind of it could be trusted anyway after having a really good conversation with him and then talking to the media player team and everything i kind of i feel like there are enough people that are now aware of this issue of there's not a good way to know reliably which network interface you're on and um anything that uses an nsurl request that you can access it has a flag where on the request you can say allow this request to be fulfilled over cellular or not, um, the movie players don't expose their requests to you to allow you to set that flag. So anyway, I talked to lots of people about that problem and didn't get a solution, but felt like um, enough people understood the problem that potentially maybe one day it'll be fixed. So that was really rewarding. And there was a third, I can't even remember. I learned something new that I didn't know about. Oh, HTTP live streaming. Apple are now licensing their fair play digital rights management which is interesting. Yes, that is interesting. For free, kind of. If you're a registered developer, you're allowed to use Fairplay um, to protect so not for your free. content. If you're a registered developer, which I guess is free. Well, no, it's not. To be a registered developer, you have to pay. No, only you have to pay to put things on App Store. You can still register. Yeah, and in fact, now you can run apps on devices without That's being true. paid. So you just have to pay to put stuff on the App Store. But that for that, you don't even, even have to register. You can just download Xcode and run. No, no, you still have to register. To put it on a device because you? you need to provision the device. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. The provisioning still exists, which kind of sucks because I thought when they announced that maybe they were doing something about that, but no. Uh, well, if if they ever get rid of provisioning, how how angry do you think all these um, third party uh, beta oh, distribution like platforms hockey, are going to be? Etc. Hockey, Crashlytics do it. Yeah, they yeah. do it now. Don't know. I feel like there was other ones, but they're just not as big as those two. Because there was obviously test flight, but I mean, we we all know what happened to that. I still use hockey for Android. Works well. Google have mm. their own in-house by Google Play thing, but hockey works. It's nice. But anyway, labs love them. They were great. Right. Well, I didn't get to go into any labs, but I did have a crazy out of the blue uh, response to one of my one of my radars that. I responded to after asking for more, inf- after them asking for more information. Oh, fantastic. Haven't heard anything since. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I figure there's probably like a seven to eight month wait before it gets marked as a duplicate. <laughs> Speaking of that, I've filed as of Google I.O. two bugs, well, one feature request and one bug against Android. The feature request was accepted as genuine within two days or something. And the bug I had a reply from an actual engineer rather than just the like bug reporting team, you know, within a day. And it's all in the open. Wow. It's just so much wow. different. Like everyone who defends radar, it's just, you can't. 
Like as much as I like radar after WWDC, you know, you talk to the engineers and they're so thankful. Like, please keep filing radars. I look when you walk away from WW, you you I, f- I feel like you're always so kind of energized to file yeah to file bugs yeah but you, that dissipates very quickly yeah the thing is right Google's open bug reporting platform I mean it obviously there are things about it that are better but it, I mean there are also things about it that are not so great Obscale, you're, you're looking at me like I'm you. like you're looking at me like how, how is that even true yeah. well I mean it's obvious it becomes obvious when when things do get kind of uh, swept under the rug or missed or you know forgotten about and it's not like magically because it's open everything gets responded to it's not it's not necessarily the case but it kind of feels like it is yeah well i i've had conversations with with uh russell previously and we actually talked about it on a podcast recently one of their one of their episodes where we um discussed the difference between io and dub dub okay and uh he's neither he nor there about google's platform but obviously it has you know benefits over over radar but it's definitely better in terms of bug reporting okay i have never used it so i can't i can't actually really vouch for for either one really fair enough so the thing that makes me enthused about radar at dub dub and subsequent to is the fact you get feedback from people saying thanks for filing that i'm going to look into it but you only get that verbally in the labs and then once you leave or if you're not there you get nothing through the web interface like there's never any sense of what the outcome has been of the bug report or what, right. what action might have been taken or how it may have like who might be interested in it. yeah it's not ideal it's kind of nuts like they could just expose tiny little bits of like well you know flagging something when a developer's looked at it well said, recently recently and get this this is crazy you can actually see the status now of the thing that it's filed as a duplicate of. Oh, wow. Yep. This is a duplicate of something, and the status of that thing is duplicate. No, status will be open yeah. or it's always, closed. Yeah. Yep. And for open. me, it's always open. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, the, uh, as as an example of, you know, of, ra- of radar being kind of completely not open, is that, um, is that bug report that I filed way, way back about the... Um, about the bet that we had about uh, content insets, yep. and it still has had zero public, you know, yep. acknowledgement or feedback or anything like that. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Yep. No requests yep. for yep. more information. And the kind of frustrating thing is, you don't know whether that means that no one's looked at it, or whether it means that someone's looked at it and people are working on it, and they just don't want to tell you anything because you never get anything back. So I, I don't mean this to be an episode where we just all beat up on radar continually, but um, I can think of a gazillion ways like small incremental changes that could be made to actually make it more um, rewarding for developers to get some feedback as to what goes into that black hole. I think at some point between now and next dub-dub, we'll probably see something change with Radar, if not at next dub-dub. I doubt it. I think next dub-dub. I doubt it. I mean, we're still waiting for the iOS 7 redesign of Radar. I think we should just get get Taylor Taylor Swift to write a blog post about it, (laughs) and then something might happen. I see what you did there. Hmm. I think that uh, the iOS 7 redesign of Radar will probably come alongside of some um, more fundamental changes because, I mean, they just, I mean, this past dub-dub, they kind of, without even mentioning it, re-de- like reinvigorated uh, their entire developer website with the exception of Radar, of course. Yeah. But everything got a rewrite and it's all it's all different and changed and, you know, part of that is the whole, you know, single... Um, 
single developer program, one developer program to rule them all. Which is pretty cool. Speaking of the new developer program and the fact that you don't have to pay to run apps on devices, I think that's going to make a huge difference for people learning how to program. So I've been working with some school kids recently, teaching them a bit a bit about app development. And just like the fact that they couldn't run the app on their own device, like I think it's so much more rewarding if you can connect your device to your computer get, and get some code running on the thing that you carry around in your pocket. Yeah, definitely. You can take it out of the room. Like you can put it in your pocket and go to school. You yeah. can actually use it like yeah. a mobile app. <laughs> yeah. And so for some people, like $99 is... Is affordable, and but uh, for it's others, not ninety nine dollars anymore. No. It was a, it's been one hundred and thirty since earlier this year. Oh right, one hundred twenty nine Australian. Yeah, um, but now it's free, right? So, so schools will be able to do that with whole classes. Yes, um, and if they've got Macs with Xcode, that includes the you know gives them the ability to run apps on devices. Um, to be clear, it's free to be a registered developer, not free to be able to put things on the App Store. That's true. But, I mean, I think that goes a long way. And I think Apple are really putting a lot of resources into making learning programming better. So, for example, um, did you guys see there's a new website, developer.apple.com slash education? I did not see that. It's fantastic. You should ha- you should really have a look at it. So, it's got um, a whole heap of materials for teaching programming, um, including like a whole curriculum for high school or even primary school teachers. Basically, I don't think it makes assumptions about the age of the learners. Mm-hmm. Um, it teaches programming from absolute first principles, no prerequisites mm. required. Um, and it's got like uh, course materials for like lesson plans for every single lesson, like code projects you can download, like um, notes to go through slides. Um, and I think they've also updated the iTunes U course. Yes, they have. Yeah. So all of that is linked from that new education website. That's the one that's provided by Stanford. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so I think they're putting a lot of effort into, and you can sort of see in the tooling as well, like things like Playgrounds and the Swift REPL as being a way of quickly and easily running code and seeing the results. Right. And in doing so, a way of improving people's understanding of what's going on. Yeah, and I I mean, like their announcement of Swift um, last year when they got up on stage and talked about it and talked about how they wanted it to be a, a language that, you know, was useful for things, you know, as simple as just writing a, a script to do something, you know, basic to all the way to, you know, building complete, you know, apps and um, projects on. Operating systems. Yeah. That kind of speaks to, you know, this education side of it as well, I think. Mm. Um, they, they were obviously kind of thinking about, you know, how, I mean, Objective-C isn't bad. Objective-C is, uh, it's, Kind of a, it is a stumbling block for people who want to learn code for the first time. It really, like, it, yeah. There's a lot you need to get your head around to write your first statement in Objective C. Like, yeah. What does that star mean? Oh, uh, well, kind of don't it, like, let me explain. Uh, and then, you let's, know, let's just pretend that, you know, the stars are just, you just would, have to have the stars <laughs> and we'll, and we'll move on from there. And eventually with Swift, you probably still need to understand about memory. Yes, yes you, you have do. to think about memory. memory at some point. But you can approach it, like you can write a, a, a few statements. You can start playing with the REPL or a playground without needing to like deal with all of those concepts in the first few lines you write. Chris Latner tweeted a link recently to an interesting talk uh, from a while back at the Swift Summit by a lady called Sally Shepard who talked about using swift in sort of programming clubs and in that talk she kind of talked about what's good about swift that makes it a good language for teaching people who are 
learning programming for the first time, but also what are some of the downsides? And a lot of the downsides she mentioned are like just access to an environment where you could run Swift. So within schools and coding clubs, you can't really expect all the kids are going to have access to a Mac, for example. There might be Windows environments or whatever. And I think that the open sourcing of Swift, this is one area where it's going to make a big difference. Because I think with open source Swift, you'll be able to get an environment running the Swift REPL, for example, uh, up and running on any computer. doesn't matter what computer it is, you'll be able to get the Swift REPL running and you'll be able to work your way through like course materials that teach you the basics. Eventually. What do you mean eventually? Well, I mean, it's not open sourced yet. No, and when it is open even then, Even then, when it is open sourced, it's not like uh, Apple are going to develop the Windows version No, right, version but of you it. could so easily just get a free virtual box and you could have like a Ubuntu VM that's pre-configured with the Swift open source stuff and some documentation. and Like you could- Sure. You could come up with an environment that someone could just like get started and have everything that they need that would be freely distributable. Okay. I think you could even imagine Chromebooks or potentially, you know, like any. Yeah. Yeah. An Arduino. You could get Swift running on an Arduino. Arduinos, they're not, they don't run Linux. Okay. Maybe not a Raspberry Pi. That's what I meant. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I think, I think that it's going to be a boon for learning programming. I can kind of see. And it seems like they're paying attention to that. Even like if the developer of the language is, tweeting links specifically to talks about Swift as a learning tool. I think that they're paying attention to it. Well, it's yeah, I, I think it's clear that they've actually, you know, considered this and it's something that they want to continue doing. I mean, you look at the last couple of years where they've been quite keen on, um, you know, having uh, scholarships available for, you know, people learning to code and stuff like that. Like it's been, I know, I, I'm sure it's been kind of, you know, a, a thing in previous years, but in the last couple of years, it's yeah. really been noticeable. Yeah, yeah. And both this year and last year, they talked about, you know, the um, scholarship kids on stage at the mm. keynote. Yeah. Like, it's been a thing that's clearly like something that Apple and Tim Cook are really kind of thinking about and very keen on. So, I think, you know, it, I think we're only going to see more from, more from them yeah, which on is the fantastic. education side. And speaking of uh, playgrounds, that was one of the sessions at DubDub that I enjoyed. In fact, I think there was a theme that some of the sessions presented by Australian presenters were maybe some of the <laughs> best sessions. I don't necessarily think that's true because uh, I have a favourite session that I can think of and definitely wasn't Australian. But, okay, name your favourite session at DubDub. What do they call it? Protocol-oriented programming in Swift. It's not my favourite, but okay. That was a great session. I didn't actually see it live. I watched the video subsequently. I haven't watched it yet, so that's probably why it's not my favourite. <laughs> well, oh. I, don't, I don't think it could possibly be your favourite unless you'd seen it. Well, it's also not going to be my favourite when I'm only kind of you know just now getting started on Swift, so we'll see. No, no, I think this will convert you and make you want to go to Swift even faster. You, you realise I have been writing Swift already. I'm not, yeah, and this I'm not will like like a, just make you uh, go, that's it, Objective-C. You're dead to me. I don't think that's how it works, but sure. <laughs> we'll just pretend. So it was a pretty cool... The thing I enjoyed about that presentation, it was twofold. I enjoyed the... I actually enjoyed the style. Yes. And the presenter kind of created this scenario where he was pretending that he had been talking to a colleague called Krusty... Krusty Bob? I think it was just Krusty. Krusty was the name of the... Sorry, Bob. I don't know who Bob is. But yeah, Krusty was like this programmer who was, you know, uh, cynical of object-oriented programming or just every programming fad well no i think it was a little bit anti-object orientedness and the presenter Definitely. was yeah saying this is why object-oriented programming is awesome and then 
he kind of turned it around its head. So part of the way through, we realized that Krusty's arguments were actually really good and there were some weaknesses in object-oriented programming. And um, I guess the main weaknesses that they identified in object-oriented programming was um, the problem of of inheritance hierarchies and how you, you either have to have a language that supports multiple inheritance, in which case there are heaps of problems with that, or if you don't have a language that supports multiple inheritance, then you're kind of stuck. There's only like one way in which you can extend functionality, which is to inherit. Or things like, well, Coco's full of the delegate pattern because it's trying to provide ways that classes can cooperate to extend the behavior of another class without having to subclass it. But anyway, so they identified those problems in object-oriented programming and then talked about how protocols in Swift can provide solutions to those problems. And um, I'm st- I need to. it's a sort of session that I need to watch a few times and then start to try some of those techniques in my own code before I'm going to fully understand how to apply it. Did anyone watch the one that they recommended a lot in that session, which was using value types in Swift? I, that's not its official title, but... I, no, because I was on a plane at that point. Or in yeah, the same. It was Friday afternoon, and I had to... Yeah, I haven't watched it yet either. I have downloaded all of them, and they're all on my phone. Yeah. I just haven't gotten around to watching them all. Yeah, because after the week of Dub Dub, which is the week that I took off mm. in quotes i had to go back to actual work mm. and do you know actual work mm. so what was your favorite jelly i'm curious now. my favorite my favorite was the one about the new system font oh that was great uh it was presented by an italian he, he was an italian yes i believe he was an italian because he told us the italian word for the octothorpe so the, the the reason that I think that it's it's one of my it's my favorite this year is because um because they go into all the like all these little features that they've really kind of thought through about the font the system font and how work how you work with UI font NS font one or the other it, so it's basically um you know they've they've kind of considered all these various different um features for the for the font like just things as simple as uh, vertically centered columns for you know when it's surrounded by numbers because that is you used use that in time all the time hmm. all the time and uh you know it's so it's actually like a, a first party feature for the font and things like um monospaced numbers so that when you have you know tables on columns and stuff of numbers they'll line up nicely other features things like um the fact that you can write fractions you know really complex looking fractions that are things like you know 23 over a thousand two hundred and fifty six and it will you know format it correctly and how they kind of thought that all that through and how they actually did it was really was really interesting they named it wrong though what i'm just going to repeat the joke that has been done a million times but it should be called francisco sans not san francisco all right because it's a font come on guys yeah okay well actually if you if you uh download the font and install it in in OS ten, it actually isn't called San Francisco. It's, called SF. it's, it's called SF. Oh, uh, I didn't I know think, that. I think that's because the typeface is called San Francisco and the font is called SF. Whoa, whoa! Well, it shows typeface up in the font, it shows up font. in the list as four different fonts. You have SF, SF Display, which is the one for headings, one headlines. for headings, yeah. and then you have SF Compact and SF Compact Display. Yeah. So I can understand why they didn't use San Francisco in the fo- in in the title of the font because otherwise be you would only ever see San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't see all the other bits. I thought that presentation was fantastic as well. I didn't see it live, but everyone was tweeting about it. And watched it. 
It, it was, was great. great. I had never thought that so much thought. Like, there's something wonderful about hearing someone who's really cares about something describe it to you. And I've kind of gotten to the point where I realize it doesn't actually matter what the thing is. If someone is passionate about it and they're explaining to me why they're passionate about it, I just find it compelling. And um, in this case, I'm kind of interested in like typography anyway. And, you know, obviously, iOS developer interested in what it means for the platform. So hearing this guy talk about the new fonts and all the thought they put into it. It's just, yeah, great. Hmm. Like, and the thing that I really liked was uh, the fact that sometimes there was like this theme that was repeated throughout, um, which was sometimes things need to be different to look similar. Visual perception is largely about illusion. And like the first example they gave was, you know, if you've got a circle and a square and you want to make it look like they're the same height, you've got to make the circle taller than the square because mm. otherwise it looks, it looks like it's smaller. So mm-hmm. you like measure it and they're actually the same height, but you take away the kind of top and bottom lines, alignment lines, and you look at it perceptually, it kind of seems like the circle's wrong. But did you know that you can do all of that with a very basic algorithm? I didn't know that. Mm. What's the algorithm? I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's very basic. Yeah, cool. So you basically plug in the same same number so that you get the same size shape. shape. So it'd probably be about the area, right? The greater the area, the smaller. Something like that, yeah. But yeah, the fact that they took all of this into account in designing their little form. So the Octothorpe, for example, is the pound sign, hash sign, whatever you want to call it. Um, The example he gave there was that when it's at smaller sizes, it looks like the hole's filling in. So they make it so that the hole, which kind of is meant to be the intersection of the four lines, they actually make it so it's bigger than the space that would be left by those four lines intersecting. Yeah, that that mm. stuff is kind of um, rampant in fonts. That's yeah. How, that's how you do things. I um, just had no idea. And like to see all of those examples. And a lot of that sort of stuff actually is born out of, um, you know, the original fonts, which are the... Um, you know, from printing old school printing presses, yeah. Because what you would end up with is things like the ink would wouldn't quite stay yeah, yeah. in the lines, and so they'd have to uh, make like the negative space kind of pointed areas. You know, change the shape of those so that they actually you know looked like they were just kind of even when they're when they're actually not. Yeah, which is really interesting. Yeah. And just stuff. Yeah. So they went into lots of detail about. Yeah, that yeah, was a great. It is very interesting. It's very, really it was really good, and I think it's if you care about typography, which I mean, iOS these days is kind of all about typography. Really, mm. I mean, it's ninety ninety percent of designing an app these days is about typography, mm. especially. I mean, especially in today's apps, because today's apps are very kind of. I mean, uh, you know, iOS six and prior, you know, it was all about, uh, you know, patterns and 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 textures and making it look like you know real things. And these days, it's all about, you know, flat colors and kind of, you know, easily, uh, you know, uh, about your content and stuff like that. And a lot of the times, your text, is text. text is content. Yeah. And so, you know, typography really matters in that particular instance. So, Which is kind of interesting. So, I wonder um, whether we'll see more apps using the net, the system font on iOS 9 or they'll still be designers wanting to pick their own fonts to differentiate. There, yeah. There'll be plenty of designers who continue to use their own font. Yeah. I mean, you just have to look at, for instance, I mean, Overcast was is kind of a key, you know, app that's been on available on the watch, you know, since day one, I think. And even on the watch, it uses its, you know, custom typeface. I didn't know that. Yeah. I think, I mean, it seemed like, it, it just made me more aware of what the decision to move away from the system font would mean, like what you're missing out on, all of the thinking that's gone into it. Well, I just think it's this sort of thing that you, 
like you notice it because it's built into the, like I mean it's built into the system font, but there's no reason why it couldn't be built into other fonts. It's just yeah. they've put a lot of time and thought into it, and it's kind of sad that a lot of other fonts don't get that time and yeah. Whereas and I'm sure care. a lot do as well. So. I mean a lot do, but that that's kind of the the markers of a good font really is when somebody actually you know pays pays very close attention and kind of you know lovingly crafts it. But that's also the you know they're the fonts that also cost you know upwards of hundreds to thousands of dollars and people designers you know working on little apps that don't have a lot of cash will you know just usually pick the pick the custom the default font or you know if they want to go custom they'll get something they can get cheaper hmm. which is sad but you know it's the nature of the beast. So you guys have picked two awesome talks. I don't know if I can pick one. So the one I was going to talk about was um about playgrounds. I thought it was interesting. I enjoyed it. I can't remember the topic of it now. Like the name. Something about playgrounds. I'll dig out the link. This is very this is all very useful. So far we haven't had a single <laughs> talk that we've actually been able to name. <laughs> no, I got one um, in the end. Took me so while, the playgrounds one that. was talking about some new features, some of which are in Xcode six already actually, about being able to use rich comments. The name of it is called Authoring Rich Playgrounds. There you go, Authoring Rich Playgrounds. So you can use markup, markdown. That's the name. Markdown to mark up your comments. Um, And then there's a mode where you can view your playground um, and it will apply sort of formatting to your comments to make it look, read a little bit like a book. And that's been in Xcode 6 for a while, but it goes further. So your playground can include resources. So basically your playground can be a kind of bundle where it can include source code in like the main playground code itself, but also supporting sources. Your playground can uh, depend on frameworks so you can have a whole heap of code in frameworks and yeah you can have graphic resources or whatever in there so you can end up having like a really rich almost reads like an interactive book basically and the session on authoring rich playgrounds demonstrated all of this so they um the example they gave was um you know the traveling salesman problem mm-hmm. uh, basically the traveling salesman problem is you're a traveling salesman you've got to visit a number of cities but in this case they say you're a tourist and you're in san francisco for dub dub and you want to visit a number of the sites and you've got to figure out what's the shortest route between those nine sites. You can't visit a site more than once. Yes, you can only visit each site once, and you've got to visit them all. And the problem is, what is the shortest path to them all? And so, anyway, the focus wasn't on that algorithm. The focus was on using playgrounds to demonstrate algorithms and, and approaches to problem solving. And so they showed some new features in playgrounds and Swift 2, um, because this was all in Swift. So one of them is there's this... Uh, basically support for making it so that when you're inspecting variables or swift structs in your playground you can get more descriptive uh, output so how you can display custom strings when you're looking at it or printing it out to the debugger or seeing results in line in your playground but mm-hmm. also how you can draw custom views as the summary kind of like quick look you can basically have for a given type and i think their type was like a location uh, you could show like they showed a little circle and the title so like as it might appear on a map um, and then they took it even further, and you can actually have view controllers running in your playground as an interactive thing. Cool. In real time, whilst you're like changing code, and you see it reflected live um, within the view. So they ended up with a like a map of San Francisco with the lines that you might be taking drawn on it in real time as the algorithm was going through and comparing the different routes. You'd see the lines appear and disappear. Yeah, well, I mean, it looks. It makes. I mean, all these kind of features make sense when you think about the fact that playgrounds 
aside from you know the various other benefits are kind of they're designed to be part of your workflow in such a way that you use them to solve a, a quick problem when you're in the middle of you know developing something much larger you can pull out the bits and pieces that you that you just want to kind of nail mm. and solve the problem and then kind of go back to it which yeah. you know i mean that kind of can cover a lot of things it can cover view controllers it can cover um things as simple as you know basic utility functions and stuff like that it's you know yeah the, i mean kind of all these features make a lot of sense and i think this stuff about or rich playgrounds is about the fact that a playground can be kind of like a, a learning resource like a textbook right and i kind of like it as an idea of replacing the readme in a framework like at the moment there's kind of common practices you've got an open source framework there's a file which is like on github the readme which is displayed on the project's homepage, basically which gives you you know this is how you use it i think it'd be awesome if the new practice was to distribute playgrounds with your framework and the playground basically the readme was a playground that you could actually run you know put your cursor into the example and change it and see in real time it run if you guys actually managed to integrate playgrounds into your actual workflow rather than just a side fun thing i did it today there you go i did it today with swift i just haven't they're so separated the fact you have to go file new playground and start messing around and you've also got no debugger which is the bit that really throws me yeah, that threw me. It, yeah, the the fact that it didn't have a debugger kind of throws me. But the fact that you get kind of in line when it runs your function, it will it will print out things about each line. Yeah. yeah. So it, that kind of makes up for it because it what helps, you just do it, but it's still not quite there. It's kind of like the rubbish way of debugging your problem is that you just start logging everything. Like that is like that is level one debugging. That is the worst way of debugging normally, but it's the ultimate fallback. So the reason logging everything, and I'm smiling in a really pained way at the moment because I just spent today fighting with Azure, writing some yeah, node code where have. there is no debugger and all you've got is logging stuff and half the time the log statements just don't appear and you've got no idea why. Anyway, <laughs> ignoring that pain, um, the reason why logging stuff is so much worse than a debugger is that you've got to like add a log statement, hit build and run, wait for it to run, wait for it to get to that point, and it goes straight past it. And then you've got to go see the output and like, it's quite a slow cycle. But what playgrounds do is they log everything instantaneously. So as soon as you've written a character or hit enter and put the cursor on a new line, you can see the output of the program in its current state. And so to me, that is enough feedback. It's quick enough that it's like, okay, I see what the line I just wrote did. Now I'm ready to write the next line. Whereas I don't, I like, I don't feel like I'm missing anything by not being able to pause execution because it's kind of like, um, showing me the output anyway. Part of the benefit as well is that it's not just logging text. It's not just about like printing text, which is all the debugger can do. So if you're doing stuff with th things like views or images or something visual, uh, a debugger won't give you very much. Like you can kind of the, – the best that you can do is kind of pause and use the kind of quick look functionality mm. and not every type has quick look. Uh, in Playgrounds, at least, you get the benefit of – um, you know, it can do, you know, views and images and stuff, all that like that in line. And you can kind of, you know, you know tweak stuff as you, as it's running um, and see it all kind of coming through. So you can kind of see the various results of different functions as they run without having, and as you're typing it and all that sort of stuff. So I, I mean, the, the biggest kind of throw, you know, kind of um, annoyance with jumping out into a playground is the fact that you do have to use 
file new and create something new and save it. So you can have but, a you can have a playground in your workspace, right? That can share the dependencies of like it can depend on other things in your workspace. So you don't like it doesn't need to be entirely mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean still the part part of the pain though is pulling out all the bits and pieces that you need to be able to run, you know, to be able to fix the mm. problem that you're having or and then putting them back in is the bit that I right, yeah. really yeah. don't like. Because that's that's like literally cut, copy cut and paste. paste. Right? Yeah. 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 Like it's all copy and paste and rewriting and making sure that you making sure that like all your your um variables are pointing to the right place and stuff like that. And it's yeah. It's not ideal, but I think it's like I think it's definitely. So what you're asking for is like inline playground. Yeah, everything should just be a playground. I don't know if the computers just aren't fast enough or or what, but that's well, what I, think, I want. I think the problem is with playgrounds where you've gone file new and everything you're writing in this file assumes that it's running in a playground. Then you set up all of the state that the code needs to be able to execute. Yep. Dynamically like that. Whereas in an app, the bit of code you're working on at runtime will be in a state where it can execute. But at the point at which you're writing it, like there'll probably be a whole heap of like variables it depends upon that don't have any value. Yeah, definitely. It's a hard problem. It's it's like definitely a pipe. What's the word? A dream. Pipe Pipe dream. It's definitely a pipe dream that probably... (laughs) I I don't understand the etymology of that phrase. Who who is this person that's dreaming (laughs) about pipes? He's a plumber, of course. And why does dreaming about pipes like represent... It's Mario, oh, Mario, Mario, and Luigi Mario, the Mario Brothers. <laughs> I hope one of our listeners answers this question for us. I suppose we could just Google. So let's um, let's talk about some of the things that were the questions that we had from the last episode that we kind of got answered in this one. One question I had last episode was: Is CloudKit.js going to change the world? And am I going to be super excited about it and want to use it? And the answer to that is no. Okay. So I went out and I wrote some code using CloudKit and CloudKit.js and I got super excited about it. I hit a snag, like it just wouldn't work for me. I was going through the examples and it just would not work. So I went to a lab. Turns out if anyone is trying to do this, when you download the CloudKit.js sample code, it has to run on your machine. It has to be served up by a web server on your machine, which I kind of assumed would be the case. But the web server needs to be running on either port 80 or port 443 can't be running on anything else. So I was just using Node to create a web server in the current directory, um, and it by default went to eight, port 8000, I think, um, and it just wouldn't work. Right, so it actually it. needs to use the the um, the proper web ports. ports. Which is weird. I don't quite understand why, but anyway, I logged that as a bug with the team. Right. But in going to the lab, I got a chance to talk to the people about who had written it about it and their vision for it and how it all works. Um, and I think it's still missing some fundamental features that make it only useful for a small subset of apps and the biggest of which is that there's no distinct there's nothing in between private data and public data there's no like shared data that other than data that's public Um, and i think that's a real problem so for example you couldn't use cloudkit to build shared photo streams or instagram so if you wanted to have a way of sort of saying this content is visible to me and people i nominate there's no way to do that right Um, and to me that like I don't know. It seems like a big oversight. Um, I mean, it might come. It might come later. I, f- I feel like they're going to continue to improve this, but I, d- I don't think it's they're going to change the fundamental underlying underpinnings, which I know that Ben has a problem with. In that, I don't think you're ever going to be able to run code on the server. So interestingly, mm. I was talking to them about that. Yeah. Um, and they're like, "Well, why would you want to?" And yeah. I, and I showed them some examples of apps I was working on that were using an Azure backend, and exactly what I was running on the server. And they took lots and lots of notes. They seemed really, really interested in this idea that, <laughs> right. oh, that, like you might want to have a scheduled task on the server that does data import. Or like, so, for example, news—the new news app they announced 
uses CloudKit, right? Um, so when you launch the news app on the iPad and it's browsing articles, all those articles are coming from a, pu- a public CloudKit database. How do they get into that public CloudKit database? Oh, don't you know? News news is all curated. Yes, it's by curated people. by people using like a Mac app that writes to that CloudKit database. There's no like, there is actually no facility to write code that would automatically put content into yeah, a CloudKit public database. Did, didn't didn't you listen to the to the keynote? Algorithms. Yeah, algori- <laughs> nobody uses algorithms for this stuff. <laughs> well, whether or not you use algorithms, it would be nice to be able to automate it, like and run a scheduled task, for example, to import data. And authentication model that they use is based on it being an interactive session where you've logged in through a web browser and you get a one-time kind of session token that the browser caches and represents with every subsequent request. There's no way of doing the same from like a command line interface. And also you have to log in to get to the public data, right? Is that right? That's true. I was just doing some basic Hello World stuff with a public database, just trying to read some records. Like I, I... there's a dashboard uh, web-based console that, as a developer, you can get to the data. And so I created some records using that, and then I wrote a basic CloudKit iOS app to re- display the, retrieve those records and display them. And it was crashing on launch because I, I was running in a simulator that didn't have a logged-in CloudKit user. So yeah, I think that's the case. You've got to have a logged-in CloudKit user even to just read the public database. Is it still in beta, or is it kind of something that you can start using right now as a as a production? CloudKit thing? itself is. Is you can use it right now. CloudKit, Cloud, no, Cloud, CloudKit JS, I don't know. Okay. So there, there's a whole heap of limitations on it. All right. Well, I mean, I'd like to be, I'd like to hear if anybody is actually using this. Like, I mean, I haven't actually heard of anybody using CloudKit for anything at this point in time. No, I haven't. I know neither. Of. So if anybody is using it, that it'd be awesome if you got in touch and tell us how you're using it. And yeah. And how you, what you actually think about these limitations. As opposed to, as opposed to us just kind of bashing on it because it, we don't understand it. Um, well, or don't you know? I'm don't think it, it fits go, within it, right? Yeah, I've got a whole heap of case. Like each time I hear more about CloudKit, I'm like, okay, perhaps I could use it for this use case. And then I go out and try and use it for that use case, and I'm like, oh, okay, it doesn't work because it's missing something in between private and public data, or because it's missing the ability to run scheduled tasks. This is how I feel about storyboards, by the way. <laughs> so one of the things that I um that I remember we kind of talked about last week was Bitcode and app thinning. Yes, Bitcode kind of in particular because I mean. Most of the other stuff is is fairly self explanatory, really. Mm. And there was a there was a um, session that kind of went into it, and they explained the app thinning kind of you know parts of the app thinning you know the parts dealing with um, distribution of just the correct assets and stuff like that, and how that kind of works and works for various different types of applications. One of the things they didn't really go into very much, like they they kind of covered a little bit, but not kind of the how it works and you know how it's kind of um, designed is is the bitcode part of it and i read an article this week which kind of explains it and it actually makes like in like three lines it makes heaps of sense so if you think about the way that we compile apps now right we're using llvm which is the compiler that's built into xcode now if you think about llvm in kind of three parts you have an llvm front end which kind of understands the programming language. So it might be the thing that understands Swift or Objective-C or whatever. You'll have an LLVM backend, which kind of understands how to you know spit out the executable f- form for various different devices and all that sort of stuff. And then kind of in the middle of those two things is something that uh, is called LLVM's 
intermediate representation, which might sound familiar because that's the part that they talk about with Bitcode. So what they're doing with this Bitcode thing is that the LLVM front end that understands the, the code that you're writing and the part that creates the intermediate representation is going to stay in Xcode and it stays on your computer and you just build it, right? That's, that's, that's the part that all gets run on your computer. Then what happens is the actual, the rest of it, the back end spitting out the executable code is actually run you know, on the app store or whatever, on their servers. So when you upload the intermediate compilation, it's actually, you've actually kind of built it to a certain point and then, then the app store will actually spit out the actual executable code for the various devices, which means that, you know, certain things get left out or included depending on the um, required, you know, frameworks and et cetera. And that's kind of how Java works, right? In the sense that, yeah. um, and maybe I'm wrong, in that you compile it to bytecode, which is an intermediary representation. Right. And then it's jitted, just in time compiled, to machine code on the architecture that it's running on. So at runtime. Yeah, except, I mean, that's, that happens. So this isn't done at runtime. No. Like you're not sending out the bit code into everybody's devices and, and then it's, and run, then it's com- you know, fit the f- compilation is finished, you know, yeah. when it's running the compilation is finished before the the user gets there yeah. um gets the app downloaded it's just you know it's just hap- it happens on the server yeah and i don't think that um apple's goal with this is to have it be as portable as java oh what no absolutely no. not i don't think that's what they're shooting for no definitely sounds like they want to be able to introduce different processes without putting load on your developer yeah so the article goes into into what the reasons for this technology might be and the basics of it are that you know they they've got they've been spending a lot of time you know purchasing um, companies that develop CPU architecture and all that sort of stuff um i mean they're one of only a few com- companies that have a license to be able to you know to mess with arm as much as they want which is the architecture for the chips that they use so what would be really beneficial for apple is that if they if they could basically go back to the drawing board and say okay well we have let, let's um let's improve these cpus the the problem has always been okay well we have to think about backwards compatibility what happens when you know if we do this change it's going to you know break all of the previous apps that have been built for our cpus and we'll have to everybody will have to recompile and and submit them again so mm. that we can they can run on this new uh this new chipset with llvms and and bitcode that's not going to have to be the case anymore mm. because the intermediate representation will live on the in the servers and then all that they'll have to do is update their uh llvm backend which you know is able to spit out the new executable code for this new cpu architecture and just spit it out and it will uh run on all these new new devices and so it will just appear as if it's seamless and so backwards compatibility won't necessarily when it comes to cpus anyway will won't necessarily be a thing that you have to cons- be concerned with yeah, it sounds kind of cool. Sounds too magic. <laughs> you, you, you don't trust it, Ben. Well, it's just like when we went to 64-bit, it was kind of like just meant to work. But, you know, everyone had little bugs somewhere that you had to fix up. Mainly, and they were definitely like your own, like the developer's fault. It wasn't like the tools were breaking. It was the developer's fault. But you still had to go in and check it and recompile it. And Oh, well, with 64-bit and 32-bit, there are data types, right, where it matters whether it's running yeah. on 32-bit or 64-bit. Whereas, so I think um, there was a good discussion on the most recent ATP about Bitcoin. And yeah, it went into a lot of detail about this sort of thing. Um, 
again, they were talking about Apple's motivations for why they'd be wanting to do it and some of the technical details of how it works. And I, th- I think what they were sort of saying was that it's probably not going to support mul- like major differences in CPU architecture, that it's more likely to support minor changes. Okay. And also potentially changes maybe not just in the CPU, but in the compiler technology. Like it, it, it could be through and, and perhaps where the two come together, right? Like you're right, they're unique in that they're designing not only the CPUs, but the compiler and the CPUs. So they could potentially put some features into the new next version of the ARM chip and then add some features to the compiler that would make code run incredibly fast in certain scenarios. But the optimizer has a history of being buggy. Like there are some things you just have to turn it off for and you don't have a choice. It's straight up LLVM. Do you have some... Do you have some examples? I can't remember. I definitely had to turn it off before, though. And, you know, a, a major release comes along and they fixed it. Because you don't know what it is, but you just know you have to turn down your level of optimization, unless you really dig into it. Yeah. I, I seem to recall also with Swift when it first came out, like, you couldn't optimize at all. Yeah. I mean, that was, like, to do with betas. That's fair. Understand that, Apple. But <laughs> just in general, like, it, at least in my experience, it never works perfectly. You have to test it. Of course, it's not going to work perfectly. Every every app is going to be different, but it's not the same as moving from thirty two uh, bit to sixty four bit. That's that is very different. No, definitely not. No, you're totally right there. I just mean like introducing a new level of optimization. I kind of hope that um with Bitcode will come improvements to things like test flight, for example. Like, wouldn't it be nice if, for example, also with the sort of automated UI testing, like, wouldn't it be good if we could, if Apple could run all of our tests? on binaries that were distributed through test flight presumably you know once it's it's test flight it's actually gone through their bitcode translation yep, process very much doubt it google google just announced that yeah i the thing is is that xcode bots and all that sort of stuff are going to have all of this built into them as well i mean not that ever anybody uses bots apparently but even xcode has got all this built into it so you can actually run you can actually run all of it no no but xcode will have the current implementation of the optimizer. Yeah, and also only what devices you own. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Apple will be running potentially different versions of the optimizer in the future, producing machine code for different architectures that we've not seen. And it would be nice if that version was tested um, automatically. Right. Rather than us having to, I don't know, like, yeah, it is. It's kind of scary for devices you've never seen, you may not own. And yeah, your point, Ben, is really good that Google have announced. So basically, they've got a test cloud. Is that what it's called? I don't know Xamarin calls theirs. Yeah, test so cloud. it's it's like very early and it hasn't been released yet. I mean, it's at first only going to support monkey testing. So not your own suite of tests. Monkey testing. Monkey testing is awesome, but still, you can't run yeah. your own suite of tests. But, you know, it's a start. Um, Sorry, define monkey testing for me. Is that where you get a room full of monkeys and let them use your app? Basically, automated monkeys. So... Your app has just opened and it's just hit with 10,000 events, you know, taps, swipes, home button, volume on, button. On everything, randomly. Just random, random testing like that. Um, yep. And you yep. get a report to see if it crashes or hangs or whatever. Of course, it's going to crash. crashes every time. Yep. Well, then that's that means that you need to fix your app because... Yeah. It shouldn't crash. It shouldn't crash. But monkeys shouldn't tap 10,000 things at once. They should know better. They don't tap 10,000 things at once. They do it in a series of... Oh, 10,000 different things. They definitely might tap multiple things at once, though. 
Maybe not yeah, ten thousand. Uh, but they it's don't not have 10, like it's fingers. not like bam ten thousand fingers. Yeah. It's like it, they'll do like a you know a, tr- a triple tap or a, you know a swipe with three fingers or you know taps multiple taps really fast and stuff like that and just kind of in various areas and points on the screen. Yeah, that's right. That's how monkey testing works. Oh, it sounds like so much fun. It does actually. That does sound like it, fun. It actually, it's actually it sounds awesome. like a really cool challenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually awesome to watch it watch it in action as well because um, yeah. just go your app goes nuts. So uh, they're not gonna do test scripts, not yet. Okay, that's kind of sad. It'd be nice if they did. Definitely for sure. But you know, it's a start. It'd be nice to see if, like, for instance, Apple and Google, when you submitted your uh, when you submitted your intermediate representation uh, or, or whatever, that they run the unit tests that you write as part of, just as as part mm. of your, you know, That'd that nice. verification that you have when you upload. Yeah. How big was testing this year? Yeah, it was pretty big. It was almost as big as um, them pleading with developers to use first-party um, frameworks. So explain to me what sessions this was in. I've got to go and watch those sessions because I didn't hear anything. So apparently it was in the core data session, although I haven't watched that. I've just heard that from other people. I'm going into flag this right now. I want to watch uh, it. it was in another session which I watched which in which they talked about core data. I think it was like a what's new in something something. So I haven't heard this. They were complaining people are using third parties or... So the what's new in core data apparently was um, like it was a it was at least the first part was a big presentation on why you should use core data and you know all that sort of kind of stuff which isn't necessarily kind of out of the realm of what Xcode session like what are these sessions are about anyway but it just kind of apparently it kind of came across as a bit of a sales pitch mm-hmm. uh, the one that I did watch which was um, I'm trying to find the the title. But I've got everything marked as a favorite, except for the ones that I've watched in which are not marked as favorites. Maybe it was one of the profiling ones. I'll see if I can find it and and I'll I'll um throw it in the in the show notes. The guy basically uh like begged almost begged you to use um first party frameworks like core data because they dog food them, apparently. And also um when a new OS is released, you will get updates and upgrades for free. That was their that was their pitch, and it just kind of came across as very like, please, please use our frameworks, please use the built-in ones. Don't use things like Realm. That's crazy. Why would you use that? Use Core Data. It's amazing. Mm. I think it was the profiling one. It was at least a profiling one. I find that very interesting. I didn't hear that myself in any sessions, but if I had, I would have been kind of concerned by it because generally. DubDub is where Apple have an opportunity to kind of tell us important things that we should pay attention to, like use auto layout and storyboards and size classes because it's going to make your life easier when we bring out, you know, split screen in iOS 9. Like they kind of say things like that where, you know, they don't necessarily say that second part, but, you know, the message is really, really clear that we want you to use these technologies and trust us there's a good reason. Yeah. So if if they were saying something as overt like that about core data... I don't I don't quite understand. I don't understand what the reason could be. Like what would be the the thing that you get through using the first party framework that the third party one would be. Well, the thing that was really interesting about it was that they they kind of they mentioned the reasons right there and then. Like previously when like for instance they mentioned they um when last year they introduced um adaptive UI, mm. it was kind of like 
Use adaptive UI. It's amazing, and it will make your UIs come, you know, work across various, you know, different size screens and stuff like that. And we all kind of went, yeah, you know what? There's going to be there's going to be like new size devices and stuff like that. And it turns out that the real reason was because they wanted to, you know, introduce it for this multitasking thing for iPad. And there were different sizes. And also there were different size devices. But again, we don't get the same thing for like you know everybody was like, oh, they're going to introduce like a smaller screen. It's going to be the watch, and that's going to be how you no. That's not. I mean, it, we we kind of understood, but we kind of didn't understand. And when it kind of all, all became clear this year, Cordata, they kind of just kind of they just kind of went use it because you'll get updates when we release new versions of our operating system for free. And also, we we use it ourselves, and so that makes it awesome. And it just kind of came across as like a lot of people have been talking about Realm, and I haven't used Realm yet. And everybody, like everybody that I that I see kind of mentioning it is talking about how it's really, really good and really fast so and all that sort of stuff. Ben, you've been using Realm on Android, haven't you? Yeah, I use it on Android. I see their argument about the iOS one. I use it on Android because the other ones on Android are rubbish. Like, they're so, so slow. Yeah, so a- Android and Android doesn't come. There's no core data equivalent first no, party from, no. on Android. There's no, there's like, not. they basically say, you want to piss this stuff, pick a way to do it yourself. But if I was doing like, a new iOS project, I'd still probably use core data. So what? How does Realm work differently from Core Data? I, I'm presuming the Android interfaces to Realm, like Realm itself, is conceptually similar on both platforms. Yep. Um. So it defines your model from the model classes rather than you having to generate them from another XC model file, which is one nice thing. So so you write like um. So with properties, Java classes. you know, you just oh no, this yep. is on iOS as well and Java. You yep. just, yeah, you just write classes. Just write your classes right. with your properties. Do you have to subclass Realm a picks them up specific type, or can you just write a class that is um, on iOS? You have to use it has to subclass from Realm model. Right, I think that's what it's called. On Android, you can use annotations. Nice. So yes, oh, I can't remember now if it has to inherit, but yes, you use annotations as well, which makes it a bit nicer. Um, the a major difference is the threading model. So core data multi-threading is notoriously difficult catches everyone out because you think you can do this and then you can't like you can't share context between threads and all i think the the thing that i found challenging with core data and multi-threading is um i don't always notice when i've inadvertently passed a managed object to a different thread like ui kit like you know you might be using dispatch async or you know doing something all of that jazz triggers or using an async api like i don't know a minus url session and you mightn't realize that you're now running in a different thread and you just yeah. access something that was captured, whose scope was captured by a closure or whatever. So it actually is quite similar. Um, you have these things called realms, which are equivalent to contexts, managed object contexts. Uh, and you can commit a transaction. You commit transactions on your realms. And realms and any data that comes out of a realm can't be shared between threads at all. Okay. But you can make realms as much as you want. Like they're very easy to start up in another thread. And as soon as your thread is, your first thread commits those changes, they will become available in the other thread. So you could re-request your results. You can do that with nested managed object context, can't you? Yeah, definitely. You can totally do it in core data. One of the major differences that between core data and Realm, though, is that Realm is a database. Core data is not a database. Core data is just a wrapper for a database. Yeah, backed by a database, but they don't like you to think of it as one. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole point of core data, right, is that at least on on OS ten, you can actually run it, have various different backends. Yes, you can. You can have XML or binary peer list or 
a database. Or you can you know, build your own. Yep. And iOS has the ability you can build your own backend uh, or you can use SQL. So SQL, it's backed by SQL Lite. Yeah. The di- the kind of the important difference is that r- Core Data is designed to be like a wrapper for you know basically interacting with these you know data stores, and Realm is a data store. Yep. So you're not talking to a thing which writes SQL code for you. You're just talking to the database. Um, it's it's a no SQL thing. Like it's an, it's a non SQL thing. It's just yep. you're talking to the data so store directly. Less abstraction. Yeah. That you're dealing more specifically. With one particular concrete store, yeah, and I mean it's it's kind of designed in that way. It's designed to be a lot faster for things like you know mobile processors and stuff, which don't necessarily handle SQL as well as um as desktop ones do. Which is why it's considered to be faster than than Core Data for the most part. Interesting. I can see Apple's point that my understanding is that like lots of Cocoa have be, has been written, maybe not lots, but that Core Data works well within the Cocoa frameworks. Yeah. Like you've got things like fetch results controller and stuff that kind of, they go together well. I don't know. I haven't really used Realm. So. I think Realm actually have a fetch results controller re-implementation. I have to check that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that stuff isn't diff- necessarily difficult to, to write once you kind of, you know, spend some time thinking about it. And most, you know, it, it's... It's not really like uh, the 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 main reason most people have a lot of trouble with things like table views is because it's just it's hard to wrap your head around the way that you know they want their data because it's not the same as the way that you necessarily are working with your data. Yeah. Um especially if you're dealing with very basic kind of requirements and so you end up with people just going okay change the data refresh the data the table yes. view. Yeah, just just make it jump around because it's really right? it's really easy to conceptualize. Yeah. And then you know, plugging a NS fetch results controller into you know into a table view makes all that sort of stuff. You know, being able to update it when your data store changes, you know, a lot easier and just kind of. But I mean, you spend five minutes actually thinking about it, and you can actually come up with a very basic, you know, implementation of your own of NS fetch results controller. Mm. It's not. It is not actually that difficult. Most people just can't be bothered. Yeah, I don't know if I completely understand the core data hate. Yeah, neither. I don't use it enough. It works for me. I don't necessarily hate Cordata, but I really don't like it. Why? You got to give a reason. <laughs> so I, I've spent quite a lot of time working with web, you know, um, talking to you know MySQL and and SQLite on you know web servers and stuff like that, and writing SQL code and all that sort of thing, um, you know, from hand from scratch. And it's a lot easier to write complex stuff. Um, to write complex fetches and stuff like that with um, straight SQL code. Oh, definitely. And it becomes a lot more difficult to write um, very kind of targeted stuff on a, on uh, using core data because you're basically dealing with – you're having to deal with straight objects and you can't really deal with just, okay, let's pull this particular value from the, from the store with this, you know, with all of these various different uh, requirements first. Um, it becomes mm-hmm. a lot harder because you have to write a lot of kind of um, boilerplate code and stuff like that to run it. Whereas it's it's more difficult to work with core data than to work with web stuff. And look, back in the day, I actually rewrote, like I ported, I created my, because, you know, that's what I like to do. I created my own version of core data for, uh, based on my SQL 
and tried using that. And it's actually like it was actually a terrible experience because it meant so much more work to get the results that I wanted instead of having to, you know, be able to talk directly to the database. And previous to Realm, a lot of people that I that I saw were using SQLite directly for a lot of things mm. um, where they needed really complex kind of fetches. So I, yeah, I, I mean, I completely understand why people don't like it. I don't have a lot of complex requirements myself, which is not something, so I haven't necessarily run into any massive, massive issues, but I mean, I've kind of been moving away from, from, from it for a long time. And I, I was quite glad to be able to pull, pull it out of um, GIF wrapped in a couple of versions back. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it depends how you view it. Like if you're viewing core data as a way of interacting with a relational database, it's not great. It doesn't have the same strengths that SQL has, for example. Being mm. able to do like complex joins where you join two or three tables together and then select some a subset of the rows from resulting from that join. There's no nice way of doing that in core data. But I don't think that's what core data is meant to be. I think what core data is is a framework that helps you manage object graph life cycles. And part of the time the object graph is persisted on disk, and part of the time the object graph is in memory. And core data has things to help you with both of those. Like it's there's stuff to maintain the consistency of your object graph in memory as well as persisting that object graph to disk and getting it back again next time. So if you think of it in those terms, I think it does its job really well. But if you're coming at it from a sort of database mindset where you're going, I know that I have these four tables and I want to write a query that does this sort of complex group by clause where I can get these rows joined with this table and sort of right. by this and filtered out duplicates. And in SQL, I could do this in a single statement. It would run in 10 milliseconds. And in core data, I feel like I need to like retrieve all of the objects from the store, do it in memory filtering, and then throw half of it away. Right. It so nuts. the problem is, right, a lot of uh, uses for that sort of you know storage is still more complex than what core data will allow. There's no really simple way of just you know of of making basic relational stuff work, and no. you know, and things like having a, a table that's you know many to many joined means you know creating a whole other object and all that sort of stuff. Like, yeah, that's kind of annoying. There are complex things that core data doesn't just doesn't yeah doesn't deal with. So EOF, which is core data's granddaddy, uh, did many to many so much better. You could flatten, you'd basically abstract that join entity, so you'd just have you know many to many between. I don't know, person and group. Mm. And and you wouldn't need to worry about the fact that there was a person group table. Like obviously there'd be a person group database table, but in your object oriented layer, person would just have many groups and group would have many people and it would maintain that for you. Whereas core data, I think you do need to manage that. Yeah, you have to create your yourself, own entity and you have to which is a pain. You have to deal with um you know, basically turning that person group into into a person or people yeah. or, or whatever. EOF also let you flatten relationships. It was awesome. So you could actually in your model editor you could go from person to group and get the group's name and flatten that as a property back into person so group name would become an attribute of your person entity even though it was retrieved by joining person to group and getting mm. the name of right. the group so to kind of you know not to you know throw I'm just reminiscing now water about on EOF. nostalgia oh EOF to kind Those of you know touch back on you know why 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 all the hate for core data i, I don't think that necessarily there is so much hate for core data I think just, you know, there are people that have different uses, like different requirements and different needs that Core Data doesn't uh, necessarily talk to. And, uh, you know, and so there, I think there are legitimate reasons why you wouldn't use Core Data and you'd use something else in its place, mm. whether that be Realm or directly to SQLite or whatever you want to use. The kind of the weird thing is, 
how they got up on stage and basically said, please use our, yeah, okay. uh, please use first party things. That's weird. It was weird. I'm going to watch that session and see if I can read between the lines as to was, was there a secret message there or... Was I don't it, feel like there just, was a secret message there because it wasn't like last year where we kind of knew that there was a secret message behind adaptive yeah. layout. Um, like everybody knew that there was, you know, clearly something they've got something coming on going on with this. What it is is not kind of important. But, but like, it's what I think is, why would they care if people are using a third party thing? Like, how does it hurt Apple? The only reason I could understand them begging you to use something is if they've got future plans that depend on future uh, plans for core data. Well, future, I don't know, like things like uh, if your app is using core data, it'll be so much easier for you to move to adopt these new frameworks we're going to bring out or. I don't know. We're we're going to magically move your core data to the cloud. Yeah, because that happened so well last time. I don't know. I don't know what I can't. I can't. This is the thing. I can't imagine what it would be that they'd say. The only other time I've ever heard them say things like that is because there was a good reason they just couldn't tell us. Whereas what you're saying doesn't sound like good reasons. It just sounds like, you know, let us make our own choices. We're going to pick the technology that's right for us. Stop telling us what to do. That's kind of what it felt like. Interesting. I didn't see that session, so I'm going to. I'm going to watch it and see. Well, it'll be in the show notes with everything else. And speaking of show notes, you can find them on our website. Our website is mobilecouch.co forward slash 60. Because 60th episode is quite, it's quite an achievement. Cool. Speaking of Jelly and Bean, by the way, sixty the 60th episode of Jelly and Bean was our last episode. Oh, no, it's an omen. <laughs> if you would like to get in touch with us and tell us about the things that you liked from Dub Dub or uh, the sessions that you really enjoyed or anything, really anything, if you would like to tell us about why you're using CloudKit.js or CloudKit just in general, uh, you can get in touch with us by email, hello at mobilecouch.co or mobilecouch.co forward slash contact if you just want to jump on the web and fill out a form, that, that one works. You can also get in touch with us individually. Uh, Jake is on Twitter and he's raring to talk to you all about, you know, something. Anything, really. Anything, really. Probably something like Swift, I guess. Maybe storyboards, playgrounds, anybody. You can, uh, you can find him at J McMullen. That's J M A C M U L L I N. Ben is also on Twitter. He is Ben Trengrove, B E N T R E N G R O V E. And, uh, he looks forward to you all following him (laughs) so that he can, tweet about things that are important and interesting and i am also on twitter i am jelly bean soup thank you everybody for listening thank you to our patreon patrons for supporting the show we are very very grateful if anybody else would like to you know help support the show you can jump onto uh our website and find the patreon link which will take you to be able to uh, help support the show we're very grateful to everybody who who does already and we're very grateful if you you know if you join in the next however long and and do it as well we look forward to talking to you again in a couple more weeks time until then goodbye Bye. bye